I want Oklahomans to know that we are getting our state agencies prepared. We are praying and hoping for the best, but at the same time, we are making sure our state agencies are ready to serve all 4 million Oklahomans. As you're aware, the situation regarding, regarding COVID-19 in Oklahoma continues to progress. The state of Oklahoma remains calm, steady, and proactive in our response. Currently, Oklahoma has three confirmed cases of COVID-19. Over the past week, the coronavirus has spread in many U.S. cities and states, including reported cases in Oklahoma. After two individuals in Tulsa tested positive, a visiting player on the Utah Jazz also tested positive just before tip-off of a game Wednesday in Oklahoma City, which resulted in the NBA suspending its season. President Trump has enacted travel restrictions, and local health officials are asking anyone with symptoms to avoid public places. Beyond the health implications of what world health officials are now calling a pandemic, coronavirus has sent stocks tumbling, especially in the energy sector, which is a critical Oklahoma industry. But it has also put a squeeze on workers in the service industry who may lose employment if events are canceled, tourism declines, and public consumption habits begin to change. On this week's episode of Listen Frontier, we discuss the process of coronavirus testing in Oklahoma, how many people have been tested, and what hospitals are doing to prepare for a rise in positive results. We also discuss how Oklahoma's jails and prisons are preparing for a potential outbreak, as detention facilities are especially vulnerable. Finally, we explore the state of work in Oklahoma and how vulnerable many Oklahoma employees are to not just the negative impacts of coronavirus, but to any health or financial challenge. I'm Ben Felder, and this is Listen Frontier, a weekly podcast exploring the journalism of the frontier and featuring conversations with those on the front lines of Oklahoma's most important stories. Hi, it's Ben, and before we get started with this week's episode, I want to let you know that all of it was recorded on Thursday, March 12th. As you are probably aware, the coronavirus situation is changing rapidly, so it's possible and even likely that as you listen to this episode, there will be new developments that we were unaware of at the time of recording. You can visit readfrontier.org for continued coverage. Cassie McClung covers health for the frontier, and she has spent the past 10 days reporting on the coronavirus in Oklahoma, including how health officials are preparing, the process for testing, and how prisons and jails are preparing for a possible outbreak. Cassie joins me now over the phone from the Frontier's office in Tulsa. And Cassie, let's start with the topic of testing. What is the process right now in Oklahoma to test someone for coronavirus? And how many have been tested? Yeah. So, you know, kind of like you said, it's really a rapidly changing situation. But um, so I can kind of give you a rundown of how the state has been handling its testing. Um, so before last Friday, which would have been March 6th, we were, um, the state was having to send all of its tests to the CDC and their headquarters are in Atlanta. So there was a five to six lag time, five to six day lag time there. Um, so as of last Friday, though, the state has started independently testing, which, you know, in theory should 
give the state a higher volume, a faster response time um, for those tests. So I can tell you, you know, it's changing so fast. But as of the morning of March 12th, um, the State Department of Health has tested 38 people in total for COVID-19. So in the whole state, we have tested 38 people. Um, We have one positive, one presumptive positive, which just means that it's awaiting um, a confirmation from the CDC. And so both of those positives were in Tulsa County, and they both recently traveled back from Italy, which, you know, we know has seen a rapid spread of COVID-19. The country's on lockdown right now. So I think people, you know, coming back from travel is something the state's really closely watching. Yeah. 38, that just does not sound like a lot. I mean, it's one thing to say we only have two cases, but that's out of just testing of 38 individuals. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things I've seen policy experts, you know, health experts bring up is there's a possibility because the U.S. compared to other countries really is lagging behind in tests completed per capita. So um, some experts have said it's possible that the actual number of cases is understated. And, you know, you have the most people are only going to show mild symptoms anyways. So a lot of countries are approaching, you know, testing almost, you know, a lot, a lot more than the U.S. has been. So um, you might have seen this. Uh, Senator James Langford this morning, he said it's going to be at least two weeks before the U.S. sees widespread testing. And he said, you know, quote, we have a long way to go. So it's hard to say when the U.S. might see wider spread testing here. Yeah. There is this feeling right now that this is going to get worse before it gets better. And hopefully that's not the case. But I mean, based on what, mm-hmm. like you said, what we've seen in other countries um, and as we ramp up testing, um, you've spent part of the week talking to health officials in Oklahoma, especially at hospitals. I mean, what are mm-hmm. health facilities doing to prepare for what looks like a good chance that we will see an outbreak? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's hard for anyone to say kind of where the peak is for coronavirus in the U.S. But I did speak with a few hospitals earlier this month, um, a couple of large hospital systems here in Oklahoma. And I think the main concern was, you know, aside from the hospital system possibly getting overloaded with people who have COVID-19, was making sure that they conserve enough medical supplies you know, to treat not only patients who might come in with COVID-19, but patients who are there already. Um, so one doctor I spoke with from OU Medicine, he told me they're screening patients who had recently traveled from countries that have seen widespread outbreaks, you know, South Korea, Italy, Iran. Um, but I think as the virus continues to spread throughout the U.S. and um, the U.S. sees more confirmed cases, it's going to be harder, you know, at least what this doctor said, to adequately screen people because, you know, you're not just looking for people who traveled from Italy or, you know, South Korea anymore. You have to think about people who are traveling from Washington, from California. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's spreading in the U.S. as well. Yeah. You know, so many facilities and organizations could be impacted. I mean, we're talking about schools and sporting events and other kind of situations where large numbers of people congregate. 
um, you know, I'm thinking about churches, especially here in Oklahoma, uh, just kind of what we're what we could be expecting to see over the next few days. But but one susceptible yeah. place is detention facilities. And, and you reported this week mm-hmm. that prisons and jails, um, you are very vulnerable to the spread of infectious disease. Obviously, there's a control of, of people coming mm-hmm. in somewhat. Um, now, there's there's no reports of coronavirus in any U.S. prisons, at least as of uh, your reporting earlier this week. But what are Oklahoma sheriffs and Department of Correction officials doing right now to prepare? Yeah. So, you know, detention centers, you might think, you know, they're a pretty controlled and isolated environment. But, you know, like you said, they're actually really vulnerable to the spread of an illness, you know, such as COVID-19. You have people living in close quarters, sleeping in close quarters, you know, eating in close quarters. And, um, I, yeah, like you said, I spoke to a couple of jail administrators, spokespeople this week about what they're doing to possibly prepare for a COVID-19 outbreak. And, you know, Oklahoma County Jail, for example, which is the largest jail in the state, has been taking precautions Um a spokesman told me they're encouraging staff to stay home if they feel sick. They're identifying areas in the jail where they can isolate people if they are showing symptoms. And, um, you know, part of the concern with jails is there's just such a high turnover in their daily populations. Yeah. You know, people are constantly coming in and out. So you could, you know, in theory, have someone who comes in with the virus spreads it to other people at the facility and, you know, then gets released back into the public a few days later. And that hasn't, there's been no cases of that reported yet, but sheriffs are concerned, you know, about someone bringing them into their jail. They're worried about their staff. They're worried about their inmates. So they're just encouraging people to wash their hands, um, trying to keep things a little bit cleaner, you know, which is not easy in the jail. So, there, there, there's different approaches they're taking to this. Yeah. You know, Cassie, one thing I keep kind of going back to in my mind is this idea that as we face, you know, what is a global pandemic and could be an outbreak here in Oklahoma, um, is that we don't do health well here. And, and I, and that's not, I mean, it's not necessarily an indictment on like right. healthcare officials and, and health facilities and stuff. Um, a lot of it has to do with the lack of preventative care, uh, high rates of, of mm-hmm. um, uninsured Oklahomans and and lifestyle choice. I mean, there's a lot of factors in play here, but we just we talk so much, especially this year with a, a expansion going on the ballot that that health is a challenge mm-hmm. for us here. And so I keep wondering, is that is there is that am I am I thinking too much about this by thinking that, man, if we, if we see an outbreak that could be uniquely challenging in a state like Oklahoma where health is, has not always been um, something that we do well. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're thinking too much into it. I'm, I've actually had this conversation a little bit and, you know, seen it with policy analysts in the state. Like you said, you know, Oklahoma, I think it's the second most uninsured state in the nation. So we don't have good health outcomes. There's a lot of people who don't have insurance, who, you know, aren't regular, regularly seeing a primary care physician. So we have people who don't have access to regular health care, who, you know, might already not be the healthiest people. And, you know, a part of, 
I talked to the health department earlier this week, and that is kind of one of the things they're thinking about is so many people here are uninsured that, you know, it's, it's not easy for everyone to go to a doctor or go to the emergency room to get a test for COVID-19. So one of the things they've been looking at, and I'm not sure where they are with this right now because it is such a rapidly changing situation, but they are trying to get more, I guess, sample collecting capabilities in county health departments so people can go get, you know, have a way to get tested without ending up with a giant bill from a doctor or an emergency room. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a challenge for, for many individuals. Um, well, well, Cassie, yeah. going forward this week, I know this is something you've been following closely. And, and as we said many times, by the time you're listening to this podcast, things may have changed and you may have more stories out, but what, what's your ongoing yeah. coverage going to look like in the days to come? What are you looking for? Yeah. So I am, you know, I've been, I started a form actually, a Google form on having people fill out who might be a healthcare worker, an expert, a medical provider, you know, maybe someone who has been quarantined or knows someone has been quarantined, you know, just people who are really on the front lines of coronavirus. And I'm just really looking at, you know, how the state response looks. Um, and also, you know, like we talked about earlier, how there really haven't been that many people tested in Oklahoma. So I think, you know, moving forward, and that's something I'm working on now is looking at, you know, why have only 38 people in the state been tested and kind of where is the bottleneck there? What's slowing down the process? And I guess, are we testing enough people in Oklahoma? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this. And like you said, when this podcast runs, um, we might know a lot more. Wednesday's announcement that the NBA would suspend its season will have an impact on Oklahoma City's economy as restaurants and hotels around the arena see a decline in business. An overall sluggish economy due to the spread of the coronavirus could also have a negative impact on the hospitality sector and other industries where low-wage workers lack paid sick leave and may be out of a paycheck if their employer closes for a few days or a few weeks. Courtney Collison is a policy analyst at the Oklahoma Policy Institute, who focuses on issues of economic opportunity and financial security. She recently published a new paper series called The State of Work in Oklahoma, which includes a focus on the lack of good-paying jobs in the state and the lack of a safety net for those working in low-wage positions. Oklahoma has a higher-than-average share of low-wage jobs. In 2018, one in four jobs in Oklahoma were in an occupation with a medium wage below the poverty guidelines for a family of four. Courtney spoke with me about her report and the negative impact the coronavirus may have on the state's low-wage workforce. So we do have a higher than the national average share of those low-wage jobs. Um, and just for reference, when we say that they pay below the poverty threshold for a family of four, that last year was $25,750 per year. So we're talking about jobs that pay $26,000 a year or less. Um, 
which is not a lot of money even in a low cost of living state. And so the fact that we have a lot of workers in those occupations that don't pay very well makes them really financially vulnerable. Um, and that's a problem, not just for those particular workers, but for the communities at large that they live in. Um, being one paycheck away from kind of financial ruin is, is obviously very bad for that family, but it's also bad for their larger community. And I think that's something that really often gets overlooked. Um, if that worker does lose their job or is just out of job temporarily for a few weeks, um, that lost income means that that worker is essentially kind of withdrawing from the economy from that time period. Um, they're not spending money anymore. Um, that means the businesses in their area are losing that business. That means um, sales tax revenue is lost. Um, and that means any, any company or organization that was really financially connected to that individual is now a little bit worse off because of that financial vulnerability. So it is really a big problem that we have such a high percentage of people in those low-wage occupations. Um, and a further problem is that those occupations that you mentioned, kind of the hospitality industry and service industries, are also really vulnerable to economic downturns. Those are some of the first places that people stop spending money when the economy starts to downturn a little bit. And so that means those workers are really, really vulnerable in those situations as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure this is the case in Tulsa. I know here in Oklahoma City, we've seen over the last decade, you know, just a rise in, in restaurants and, and kind of the hospitality sector, new hotels and new convention centers being built. A lot of that is based around the arena here where the Thunder play. And this week we saw the NBA suspend the season, which kind of started with the cancellation of a Thunder game on Wednesday. And I immediately right. thought about, you know, all those employees at restaurants and hotels and what the loss of games, you know, means. And, of course, when, you know, when we see a downturn, you know, in the energy economy and, and people maybe eat out less, that, you know, as you said, a lot of things can contribute to a decline. But if if this pandemic spreads to the point where we see, you know, we already have seen the cancellation of the NBA season, we see other things that, you know, fewer people are going out to eat or going to hotels. Uh, this this could really have a, a really negative impact on a large part of our, of our workforce here. It really could. And, you know, when we do start to see higher levels of um, diagnoses in Oklahoma, we do expect to see um, significant slowdowns in hospitality and in tourism and in service and retail. I mean, people aren't going to be going out as much because they want to avoid getting sick. They're going to be declining to take trips. They're going to be canceling trips. Um, we're, not, we're probably not going to see as much just casual, I don't really need anything, I'm looking, kind of shopping, and that's going to really impact the retail industry. And so those workers um, are likely to see less business. Um, they may be scheduled to work fewer hours a week as a as a consequence of that decline in demand, they may even be laid off. Um, so I think it's important to remember as we start to talk about this as a pandemic that being getting sick is not the only thing that, that we need to, to be aware of. Yeah. Right? That's not the only bad thing that happens in this scenario. Yeah. You know, your report also shows you know, that, that sluggish wage growth among low- and middle-income workers is not being offset by increased benefits for employees. Um, and you it's mentioned not. earlier, yeah, and that, that kind of lack of paid sick leave. I mean, it, it, everyone or, or a large chunk of the workforce is, you know, kind of one missed paycheck um, from financial ruin. I mean, that's I mean, there's not a safety net for a large portion of our of our workers here in the state. 
that's really true. Um, a lot of these industries that we've been talking about um, are jobs that don't necessarily come with benefits. So you may not get employer-sponsored health coverage, which is the real obvious problem in, in a pandemic, but you may also not have access to paid sick days. So if you do get sick um, and you do stay home from work, you're losing pay. Um, and what that means is that a lot of people are going to go to work anyway. Um, and then things spread and and then a lot more people will get sick than are necessary. And so the things that that make sense to a worker to to maintain their paycheck and support their family actually can increase the severity of a communicable illness. Yeah, and as you point out in the report, I mean, 57%, just 57% of Oklahoma adults have health insurance through their employer. So almost half exactly. are, are not being provided that benefit. Right, um, and they may have the means to purchase, you know, um, insurance individually on the marketplace. Um, they may be eligible for sooner care, but if they don't fit in one of those two scenarios, then they're very likely uninsured, um, which is not a good thing at any time, but especially right now. Yeah. Um, what? So what is the, you know, the answer, as much as we can get into it in just the next few couple of minutes, but I know one of the things that you advocate for in the report is an increase in minimum wage, which in Oklahoma is at $7.25, and a lot of times when you hear that proposal made, the pushback is that, well, Oklahoma is a low cost of living state, so our, our, our minimum wage doesn't need to be as high as you see in other states. But your report shows that, that that gap, though, between, you know, what you're making on minimum wage and what it takes to live, um, not just in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, but across the state, that gap is widening. I mean, and it's already wide. And so, um, you know, obviously minimum wage is something that you point to, right? Right. Um, yes, a higher minimum wage would definitely be a really great first step. I mean, we know that it takes more than seven twenty-five an hour to get by, even in Oklahoma where things are are low. Um, a living wage in Oklahoma would be at least ten dollars and twenty-two cents, according to most calculations, and that's just bare minimum getting by wage. Um, it would really need to be higher than that in some places in Oklahoma. And we've seen a lot of states raise their minimum wage, including our neighbor Arkansas, which has a comparable cost of living. Um, and so it's it's hard for me to understand why it's necessary there but not necessary here. I think it is necessary here. Our wages do need to be higher. And I do want to point out that working sure. from home is a great option for people who can do their jobs from home. Um, Bartenders and servers and retail workers can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so cannot emphasize enough how vulnerable those industries are going to be um, in the scenario and how much they lack the benefits they're going to need to be financially stable. On Thursday afternoon, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt and Oklahoma Commissioner of Health Gary Cox held a press conference at the state capitol to provide an update on the coronavirus and the impact on Oklahoma. Here's a part of that press conference. We, we have uh, three uh, presumptive, uh, three confirmed cases, and then there were two cases that were from the uh, Utah Jazz players 
that will be counted as Utah numbers. So we have five confirmed cases. Well, we, we, have, uh, we have the capacity to run uh, about 100 uh, tests a day. Um, and we have a number of test kits. Uh, we're ordering additional uh, reagents at the current time. And so uh, we have the, the current capacity, I think, for about 300 tests. However, there are two uh, private laboratories who are in Oklahoma and who either are or will up, be up and running very soon. Uh, Lawrence Burns said, state epidemiologist, Oklahoma State Department of Health. So the three individuals uh, that we're talking about, uh, the two Tulsa County residents uh, that were reported earlier uh, this in the last week, those individuals have been under investigation by Tulsa health officials. The appropriate control measures have been implemented, such as isolation of those individuals, as well as uh, daily monitoring of any close personal contacts that would be at risk of exposure uh, for the 14 days through the period of their last date of exposure to those cases. The, uh, uh, the third individual that we're referencing is a new report, so that investigation is ongoing at this time, uh, so that's in progress right now. The difference between isolating and quarantine is isolation is when you have an individual that is actually experiencing symptoms of illness, and they could be potentially still infectious, so you want to try to prevent further transmission to other individuals that could be exposed from being in close contact with them. Quarantine is when you have an individual that is not symptomatic, but they have been exposed, and you want to prevent the potential for further exposure if they go on to develop symptoms during the time frame expected, which for novel coronavirus, that would be up to 14 days. You know, the recommendation has been, you, we, you don't want to close them down too early or too late. You want to try to prevent uh, the spread. So the, the thought process is, if you close them down now, when do they reopen? And so really, we're monitoring that very closely. We're, we're um, as we have community spread, that's when we're going to recommend that we close down the schools. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find other episodes on your favorite podcast app, and you can also find continued coverage at readfrontier.org. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you for another episode next Friday. Thank you.